Okay, we're going to look at Daniel in just an overall view, and we'll probably only get through the first nine chapters in an overall uh, view. And we're not going to look at the uh, parts that you could just pretty well figure out and all by reading the context itself. But we're going to look at it from the standpoint of the, the authenticity uh, or genuineness of the book itself, and then at uh, those parts involving prophecy and fulfillment and all, where it would take uh, a background in history in, in order to know, or, or the ar archaeological things. Uh, what I'd like to do first is give you just some of the aids that I've got on this, that would use on just one book like this. And if you don't all, if you really want to be a serious student of the Bible, I really don't believe you can do it without at least access to the right books. I mean, that I know I had it preached to me and even started off preaching the same things when I was young, that, you know, all you need is the Bible. And you can sit down and there's no question that uh, the Bible as a revelation contains uh, all the religious truth uh, that God has revealed uh, to man. And we have everything we need for salvation and all of that. The Bible was revealed in a historical setting. And you can very easily, and I won't even go through the examples that you could do it, but I can very easily show that there are just multitudes of things in the Bible that there is no way that a person can have an accurate understanding of it if he's not familiar with the period of history uh, that it was written in and knows something about the language itself, knows something about uh, the dating of the books, the authenticity of it, and, and things of that nature. And in our society today... It's becoming more important to study the Bible in this way. And if you have a service uh, like uh, Mark, wherever, wherever, wherever you all worship, or any of the other churches, uh, just opening up Daniel or one of the books and beginning with chapter 1, verse 1 and going through it may very well be good enough if you've got sitting in your audience mostly members of the church who already believe the Bible and, and who are going to read it that way. But if you're talking uh, to an audience... Uh, with individuals in it who do not already believe it. Or if you're talking to people maybe who have been brought up in the church, but as a result of information they've come in contact with through their reading and in college and all, there is now a lot of skepticism and doubt about certain things. Then that's simply not going to be good enough. Also, there are certain things uh, in the Bible itself that uh, you can read and understand the words and, and what it's saying, but only an understanding of some of the customs and the things about the language and other matters that you would have to study from archaeology or history would allow you to fully understand that, even though you can read what happened. Uh, for example, you can read that Abraham had relations with Hagar uh, because Sarah desired uh, that he do, and she was for it too. And you can see what happened and all the conflict, and you can read that. But to understand why it happened that way, and why that Sarah was in agreement for Abraham to have relations with Hagar, and why that he could in good conscience, and Sarah could in good conscience, and, and Hagar could in good conscience, you would have to know something about the customs and the information basis that those people were operating on. Uh, you can read how that Lot offered up his two daughters to spare the... Uh, the lives, maybe, are they being raped uh, by male homosexuals that were beating on his door. 
you can read that, and, and, and it looks almost uh, extremely impossible for us to understand, because Lot says, leave these men alone, I'll give you my daughters. And, and, you, and you're wondering about Lot. And, and you can read that and see what he said, but to understand that, and to understand where Lot is coming from, and to see how he could do that in all good conscience, and, and that even his daughters could accept that situation. And, and remember also, uh, the daughters got Lot later, when they got out of there, the daughters got Lot drunk and had relations with him, his own daughters. Well, it's only by studying the, the history and the customs and the language and all of that time that you really understand where they're coming from. The daughters did what they did in all good conscience, and Lot did what he did in all good conscience. And, and what, what is there is true going all the way through, that there are any number of events that we can read and see and, and things that happen that seem irrational to us, but yet we can understand it when we go back and look at the, the events uh, in light of the historical setting. All right, now, some books, uh, these are some that are exceptionally good. And by the way, that I think personally it's good to read from both uh, liberal and conservative scholars. Uh, I am uh, conservative myself in that I believe in the inspiration of the Bible based on the, the evidence and all. But I think you need to know where the other fellow is coming from. And also that uh, a scholar uh, who may be, uh, not have the same value for the inspiration of the Bible, that does not stop him from being knowledgeable in history and archaeology and language, and he can, be, he, he can help you out. Uh, the difference between him and the conservative scholar is not his knowledge of the facts, but it's his interpretation of them. And so if you just keep that in mind when you read scholars, that they are, they're, they're equally cognizant of the, the facts that are there, uh, the difference is, is going to be how they interpret that, and it's, it's good to be aware of where each of them are coming from. This book here, Archaeology and Bible History by Joseph Free, begins in Genesis, goes all the way through the Bible, and gives you the archaeological discoveries that have been made that bear, in other words, if you was going to uh, study the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you could pursue, read this at the same time. Same time you're going through Genesis to Revelation. Go through this at the same time. And it'll give you, up to the dating of this book, the latest archaeological discoveries that bear on that particular book. Uh, I took a course in uh, college, several of them, in, in graduate school dealing with the Bible and archaeology. And this was uh, one of the textbooks that we used. Okay, this book here, Historical Backgrounds. A Bible history. Jack Lewis is a member of the church, uh, teaches at Harding Graduate School, an outstanding scholar. Again, uh, this information given in a chronological order. In other words, you can go through it. In other words, you don't necessarily have to sit down, and I know everybody's time is limited. Uh, that, uh, In fact, uh, uh, a lot of books that I've read, I read back when I was preaching on a full-time basis. But I still get through them, and you can too, even though your time is limited. Say, for example, you're, we're studying Daniel now. Every one of these books can be used by just simply turning to the part of that book that deals with Daniel. And Daniel's 13 chapters, if you're going to cover it, say, in 13 weeks, well, then that gives you 13 weeks to browse through the information in these various books that deal just with Daniel. And so by the time you finish it, you not only have taught the course, but you have come out with a real good understanding yourself and having read the very latest and all the archaeological and, and historical things. If you are in a class in church, where they're saying you're not teaching the class. If you have several of these, and while they're going through Daniel, if you then are reading this too, I guarantee you, you'll enrich that class 
and, and enlighten people on information that they don't know and help them understand the, the material itself. And you might even, as a result of it, you may even encourage whoever's teaching it to start doing some reading so they can bring out uh, more materials. But you can do it. There's a good way to study the Bible is whatever book you're studying at church to go ahead and read the various things on that book. Okay, here's a couple more. The Ancient Near East uh, and the Ancient Near East, Volume 2, an anthology of texts and pictures dealing with the latest archaeological discoveries. Another one, Jerusalem in the Time of Jesus, excellent book. Archaeology of the Bible, book by book. This is from the work of a liberal scholar, but still has some very, very good information in it. This is a magazine that I used to subscribe to for a number of years, and and, I'm, and Barbara hates to hear this because she thinks I get too many magazines anyway, but I've just filled out the form, and I'm going to pick up my subscription again <laughs> for the following year. But this is uh, on archaeology. Let's see. This is... Uh, the name of the magazine, at least this may not be the same one, uh, Archaeology and the Bible is the name of the magazine I've just filled out the form on. But you can see this, Jews and Christians in a Roman world, and uh, the magazine comes out every other month, and outstanding information. Now, the advantage of a magazine is you get the absolute latest archaeological discoveries. The disadvantage is, is that you're going to get a lot of quick theories uh, some of which may be inaccurate, and you have to keep that in mind. But the advantage is you'll get the very latest discoveries. Um, the Bible, a pictorial history, going all the way through, excellent book. Uh, this uh, book here, this book here, is a commentary. There are any number of, of good commentaries. This one uh, by Butler is different in the sense, personally, I don't like wordy commentaries that have a lot of opinion in it. I prefer uh, a, a writer who deals with it mostly from a, from a historical standpoint and a language standpoint. Uh, and anytime you get something that's real thick on one book, I guarantee you it's full of a lot of opinion and a lot of theory. This guy taught uh, Daniel in college for a number of years, and the book evolved from the notes that he generated while teaching it in college. And so it's as you go through it, what you're really getting is the outline, along with the sources and all, of a person who is uh, uh, fluent in the Hebrew language, and he's well studied in all of this material and a number of other materials, and he gives a very good outline of the of the book itself. But it's the, this, by the way, this is from the College Press. It's uh, uh, a Christian church group, and this whole College Press series going through the entire Bible is outstanding in the sense that every book is written by someone who's actually teaching that in college, and the book was generated from the materials that he used in teaching that on a college level. Um, this book, this is the, this is just a Bible, Old and New Testament, but this particular Bible has the Apocrypha. Uh, believe it or not, uh, some hundred, few hundred years back, and going on back to the first century, most Christians studied the Apocrypha. Uh, that's the books written between the Testaments. Uh, we're simply told in the church that, hey, those are the books the Catholics have in their Bible, and we know they're not inspired. Well, they may not be inspired, but some of them are good historical works. And 1 Maccabees is an outstanding historical work. 
uh, of things that took place between the Testaments. If you're going to find out when the Pharisees and the Sadducees and people like that came into being, uh, then you need to read the Apocrypha and, and those other materials uh, of, of things that happened between the Testament. I've got a number of different works of Josephus. This is the best one. Uh, the print is big, and there are a lot of pictures, and there's also commentary with it. Uh, I've got a number of encyclopedias. This is the best, even though it's aged, McClintock and Strong. Uh, on Daniel, uh, you can see that I've been all through this over the years, but outstanding information. The, the shortcoming, of course, it's only, it cannot have the latest archaeological information because of the dating on, on the book itself. So, and that's true of always... Uh, one of the first things you want to do with any book is look at the date because that lets you know uh, how much information they have up to a certain point. For example, anything before 1947 will not have anything on the Dead Sea Scrolls. And, and, and then you have to really get into the 60s before you've got enough of the information out that people can really deal with it in a, in a meaningful way. Now you can do an outstanding job. But, no, no, this is a 12-volume set. And I just brought up the, the one, one volume as an example. And this is one of the better. Now, I've got a number of sets of encyclopedias, but this is, uh, this is one of the best. I've, uh, anything, dealing with anything in the first century, that uh, I can find it uh, in there. You know, it, it's really good. All right. Try to accumulate over a period of time. I think the best way to get is when you're studying various books to... Try to accumulate, uh, talk with people that have read them, uh, check out libraries, uh, go to places like the Gospel Advocate or some of these other uh, bookstores and browse through their books and everything like that. But books are to the student what tools are to a, a mechanic. And I think we all know that you could take a, a mechanic or a, or a carpenter, who two of them who had equal intelligence and were equally hard workers, and give one of them the latest sophisticated tools and and the other not those tools and we all know who's going to outperform him. and he, he'll he'll not only outperform him but he'll do it in a whole lot less time in the same way you can take two equally intelligent people who are equally studious equally hard workers and give one of them more tools to work with and he's going to come up with better information and and more accurate information but you i think that that you know, all of us, as we think in terms of teaching it, you cannot make a better investment than on a regular basis to purchase good books. And don't think in terms of sitting down and, and reading them through. Think of them as reference works. That whenever you're studying that particular section, so that immediately, while you've got it on your mind, uh, you can just go and check that out. Another good thing, I know you all have at your church building, uh, a pretty fair library. And... Uh, I think church libraries, where the church is any size at all, are great because uh, obviously when people are first converted or with young people or you know at different stages along the way, a lot of people can't afford just to go out and spend that much on books. And so to have it there, uh, you know, and also to have them picked by somebody that is read in them is, is good. Okay, Daniel then becomes an example of what we could do. We're going to look at it in a way that we could look at all. You know, the books. I believe that every book you approach in the Bible ought to be approached in the same way that we're going to start looking at this, uh, and and ought to have background information uh, on the material itself. Okay. Um, the first question, then, we're looking at Daniel, and we read the story. 
uh, is that uh, why do we believe that Daniel uh, is uh, inspired by God? And why do we actually believe that it is inspired by God, that the writer himself is writing under the inspiration of the uh, Holy Spirit? Okay, you, because you're saying it contains things that, uh, prophecies that, uh, uh, about things that happen in the future, right? And, and they were fulfilled. Okay. But, uh, the, someone says, yes, that's right. But, really, Daniel is a historian who's writing after these things took place and he's trying to make it appear as if it was written in advance. Now what do we do? Okay. The, in fact, uh, think about yourself. If you were approaching the Bible as somebody that had not been brought up or did not have an emotional desire <coughs> or anything like that. Uh, for example, if, if right now uh, I were to tell you that this event that just happened was forecast 10 years ago by such and such, uh, the first thing your mind would want is proof of that, right? It, it, the fact that you can read that it, uh, that it says uh, uh, such and such, uh, that doesn't prove anything to you. If I, if I presented a document right now that said the Iron Curtain was going to crumble and these various things were going to happen in Russia and over in that part of the world and everything like that, and I said, here, this person wrote every bit of this five years ago. Well, that doesn't mean anything to you unless I can prove it to your mind that it was written five years ago. It, it doesn't. Well, in the same vein, that Bible prophecy really doesn't mean anything uh, until you can prove that the material was actually written. And so when a person uh, studies the Bible, remember I said earlier that you couldn't use it in a meaningful way unless you knew other information. All you've got is the Bible, okay, for right now. Mark, you've got Daniel. Nothing else. How do you prove that Daniel was written before that information took place? You mean what our uh -huh. if, you got, if you've got Daniel, you're not going to read anything else outside the Bible. The Bible contains all the truth. And you, you've got the Bible and that is it. And you're not going to read anything else outside of it. How do you prove that Daniel is really prophecy? Okay. One of the sources um, regarding Belshazzar in chapter 5 and the fact that Porphyry um, the guy that said that, said that it was uh, written in 165 BC that information wouldn't have been available to a historian writing during that day because evidently from what, from what I read um, Nabonidus uh, was in all of the archaeological or all all the historical documents. He was he was he, he was king of Babylon at that time, and the evidence of Belshazzar being co-regent was not available between about 450 B.C. and, and 1800. Okay, but what did you do? You have you every every word you said was dependent upon information outside the Bible, right? What I'm okay. You you've got the Bible. Nothing else except the Bible. How do you show Daniel was written at this point in time? You can't do it. You can't, can you? 
How do you show Isaiah? We talk about all these fantastic prophecies in Isaiah. How do we show Isaiah was written? At that we can't. And so I'm, I'm saying the 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 statement that all you have to have, yes, it contains uh, you know the truth of God and all. But in fact, uh, Daniel was written in what language initially? Hebrew and Aramaic. And so, in other words, we're still at a loss unless we got somebody that's going to go by. How do you? How does somebody study Hebrew and Aramaic in order to be able to translate it into English? Do they just go back and get this uh, Hebrew Aramaic copy of Daniel and begin to translate it, or do we come up with a dictionary of Hebrew and Aramaic words from reading? hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other sources written at that time and as a result of of reading that we develop our dictionary that we can then use here but we can't i'm saying there's there's just no way out and and we're not saying that everybody has to study all of this but we are saying that the more that a person is knowledgeable in these areas the better job he can do of presenting the material and if we're going to deal with somebody uh, who has not been brought up believing the Bible, then we're going to have to be able to at least handle that uh, in a way that that person can see some evidence for that situation. Okay, let's look at uh, Daniel then. If you're, we're going to look at him first, and we'd say the first point would be that uh, that Matthew records Jesus as quoting from Daniel when he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in Matthew 24, verse 15. All right, that just the fact that Matthew quotes that, and when we consider Matthew was written for the purpose of trying to persuade uh, Jews that Jesus was the Messiah, and, and, and his emphasis is on Old Testament prophecy. So the very fact that he just quotes uh, Daniel as Matthew gets this information out in the first century, does that show us anything that helps us? Well, it shows us that Okay. Obviously, if Matthew's trying to persuade Jews that uh, that Jesus is the Messiah by showing how he fulfilled Old Testament prophecy, he could not quote Daniel and use him except the very the Jews he was trying to persuade already accepted Daniel as a prophet of God. Okay. So that shows they accepted. Also shows that uh, Jesus acknowledged Daniel as a prophet of God. Well, then how is that evidence in any way just because Jesus acknowledged him as a prophet of God? Everything stands behind Jesus. Okay. Whatever. If Jesus does it, then, then if we have already studied the evidence for the resurrection of Christ, if we've studied the evidence for uh, his pursing and and all that's involved in, in the proofs about him, then that in turn will stand behind. Uh, for example, just like when Jesus makes the plain statement that the Holy Spirit would guide the apostles into all truth, then the evidence that stands behind Jesus stands behind the statement that he made. And so we know that Matthew, obviously, here is Matthew, a Jew, an educated Jew of that day. Uh, who who not only believes that Daniel's inspired himself, and that still doesn't prove it. It just says that an educated Jew believes that in that day. It also shows that that the other Jews of that day believe that Daniel was a very special book, and it shows that Jesus believed that Daniel was a prophet. 
And so we begin now to build uh, some evidence behind Daniel. Okay, now, another thing that we find out, uh, a great Jewish historian of the first century is Josephus. And extremely well-studied, well-educated individual. All right, Josephus referred to Daniel as the greatest of the Jewish prophets. And so he was over. So here is a man who is an outstanding Jewish scholar of the first century, calling Daniel the greatest of the Jewish prophets. But here's another interesting thing: when when he calls Daniel that, Josephus also states in his writings that the Old Testament was completed four centuries before Christ, and he made it clear that there had been no vision or prophecy or anything. So that means that Josephus put Daniel four centuries before Christ based on all the information that he had in that day, and he is the outstanding Jewish scholar of that day. But in order for him to make that statement, and other Jewish scholars not challenging, shows that he stated an accepted fact among the Jews. That, uh, for example, the books called the Apocrypha books, there was no Jew that claimed they were inspired. And when Josephus makes this statement that inspiration ended with Malachi four centuries before Christ, that statement is never challenged by any Jew. It's, it's accepted. And, and yet that same Josephus says that Daniel was the, the greatest of the prophets. He was just overly impressed with Daniel. Well, another piece of evidence. So we don't have proof, but when we look at Matthew, we look at Jesus, and then we look at uh, Josephus and his statement, at least evidence begins to build that there may be something here. Okay, now we go to the Dead Sea Scrolls. And between two, they were translated uh, between 280 and 240 B.C. from Hebrew to Greek. Daniel is not the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Greek Septuagint, I should say. Daniel is in the Greek Septuagint. Okay, the Greek Septuagint was translated by 72 of absolutely the greatest Hebrew scholars of that day. In other words, they were recognized among the Jewish people as the very top, the very supreme of their scholars. And so the very top Hebrew scholars incorporated Daniel into the Greek Septuagint and embraced it. So that does several things. It puts it back over two centuries before Christ, but it also shows the attitude of the top Jewish scholars, just as Josephus shows you the attitude of an outstanding Jewish scholar and then it also gives you his statement concerning the date of the book itself. Well, then the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, uncovered in 1947, give us actual manuscripts of Daniel that go back one and two centuries before Christ, and they were copies. Uh, and it also it does something else. When we look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, we can see that those people embraced Daniel as a prophet of God. In other words, they, they copied it, and they wrote commentaries on it, and they embraced it as a prophet of God. Okay? So again, this still doesn't uh, prove. It, it, it just, all of this is evidence. Okay? So what we're saying is, the available evidence to us is in perfect harmony with what we have in Daniel based on our knowledge reading it through the Bible. In other words, that there's nothing in our evidence, factual evidence, that contradicts the location of Daniel in the Bible and the other uh, statements there. All right, now, 
when we look at Daniel then in, in, in its place in the Bible, it purports to have been written by a Jew who was carried into captivity at about 605 and who lived through captivity beginning with Nebuchadnezzar in Babylonian all the way to Medo-Persia and he was there when the, the per Medo-Persians defeated the Babylonians uh, in 538. He was there when the edict was passed to send people back home to their city in 535. He's a young man when he goes into captivity. And we have a 70-year span. So by the time we start uh, the Babylon, I should say the beginning of the Medo-Persian reign, Daniel is somewhere around 90 years of age. And so he doesn't have far to live. So it purports to have been written by a man who was a very young man <coughs> in 605, lived on down a little beyond 535, and then that was it. Okay, so he can only have been an eyewitness of what happened with the Babylonians and in the first part of the Medo-Persians reign. At this time, nobody's even thought of Greece becoming a world power or Alexander the Great. Uh, the Medo-Persians are just now on their way up to becoming the world empire. And so uh, the things about Babylon, he could actually experience. And then the beginning of the Medo-Persians. But then he could not, if that Daniel wrote this, uh, he couldn't know any more than that because he dies and then we've got to complete the Medo-Persian. We've got to have the Alexander the Great uh, defeating the Medes and the Persians. Uh, we're going to have a split in, the, in Alexander's kingdom after Alexander dies and it'll split four ways. We've got to have antagonist epiphanies from one of those groups attacking and defeating Israel and, and desecrating the temple. And then we've got to come all the way down to the Roman Empire and then the start of Christianity. And all of that will happen after uh, this person here dies. Now, as we look at this, the other side that we've got to look at is that there is the statement, as you mentioned, Mark, that, uh, that Daniel was written between 175 and 163. Actually, it would have uh, that the, encompassing that period of time, by, but really written somewhere around 163 uh, B.C. Okay. Now, this was first written. Let's see. I had the date down here somewhere. A.D. 232 to 303. A fellow lived by the name of Porphyry, a pagan, and he is the first person that challenges. Daniel and says it was written at that period of time. All right, now the first thing we want to know, note on the challenge of Daniel, and by the way, the uh, 18th and 19th century liberal scholars also placed Daniel at 163. But we note that uh, we get all the way into the 3rd century A.D. before this statement is ever made, and that's interesting because Daniel has some absolutely fantastic prophecies. I mean, just absolutely. Uh, obviously, Josephus was overly impressed. Jesus was impressed. Matthew was impressed. Uh, the scholars who translated the Greek Septuagint, they were impressed with Daniel. And, and there's some absolutely fantastic things there. In other words, it should have been challenged from the very first. The, the things it says are so absolutely fantastic. And, are, and they do such a good job of, of pinpointing uh, what happened. And it's so exact that it should have been challenged from the very first. But it's interesting that the first person that proposes uh, that Daniel was, was the work of a Jew 
uh, a pseudepigrapha work in that, in other words, somebody who wrote it in 163 and stuck the name of Daniel on it is a pagan in the third century. Okay, so that's interesting. Well, then the question becomes, what caused him to make that statement and what evidence did he have? Okay, and so now if you're studying with somebody and they're familiar with that, and they say, well, I believe it was written after it happened, your next question should be, what is your evidence for believing that? In other words, I can, you can say, I can give you evidence for believing that it was written at this period of time that I believe is absolutely overwhelming. What is your evidence for it having been written at this time? Anybody know of any evidence from your readings? I don't. It counts, I mean, the print, it counts from presuppositions. So okay. Premises, and that's, that's how they start. Okay, it comes now. now this, what we said was going to use Daniel as a model for all these books. The, the, anytime you read a statement by a scholar that is stating that some book in the Bible was not written at this particular point in time, well, like, for example, the Law of Moses will be moved up a long way from uh, in the direction of Christ, or whether it be Daniel or Isaiah or what, without exception, and I mean without exception, it is always written, as Mark said, with a presupposition that this is not inspired, therefore it, it cannot have prophecy, and therefore the only explanation for it is it has to be written after the event itself. And so that's the presupposition. All right, then here's what they do. That doesn't prove what they've said. But they have that presupposition because of their bias against inspiration. And, some, and from an atheist standpoint, like Porphyry, he rejects God. Well, obviously, if you don't even believe in God, it sounds kind of silly on the surface that somebody's talking about prophecy and inspiration and things like that. So here's what you do. You don't believe in God. You don't believe in inspiration. That's your presupposition. So therefore, you approach Daniel or Isaiah or the law of Moses or whatever it is with the attitude, I've got to show that this is false. So you began scouring it, looking for anything. In other words, you don't just read it like somebody reading the Bible and, and trying to see what it says. You began to scour it, looking for information that will prove your theory. Okay, it's like that you have come become convinced that so-and-so over here committed a certain crime and you don't have any evidence yet. Uh, you just know that you, for whatever you've got, you just don't like his looks. So then you began looking for every piece of evidence you can find that would uh, prove that this person committed the crime. Well, that is the way that these people approach these books. And so then they began looking. All right, here's their first piece of evidence. Daniel is too specific and some of his prophecies to have been written several hundred years before it happened. For example, that what he says concerning Antagonus Epiphanes uh, in the 8th uh, chapter, 7th, 8th chapter, in the 11th chapter of Daniel is just so specific that there's no way in the world it could have been written hundreds of years. That's, that actually is the first evidence. Well, now let's look at that. Is that an evidence? Or is that still presupposition? Presupposition. All right. Still, that's not an evidence. In other words, that's their first evidence, is that he is so specific that it has to have been written at that time. And the reason now he puts it at 163 is because that is when Antagonus Epiphanes came into Jerusalem 
desecrated the temple, offered a pig as sacrifice, claimed himself as God, and appointed the priest himself, uh, tried to stop the practice of the Jews offering sacrifices and all, desecrated the temple and the city in every way that he could. And so, uh, because he did that, they said, there's no way, you know, it has to have been written there. And so that's how we come up with uh, 163. Okay, but what we see now is the first two things he says is really not evidence. That too is presupposition. Okay, so then here's his third piece of evidence. And Mark alluded to it a while ago. He says there are historical errors in Daniel that show that he did not live at that point in time and he made some mistakes. And so he goes to the fifth chapter of Daniel and Daniel has Belshazzar as king in Babylon. Then they go to Babylonian history, and Babylonian history has Nabonidus as king at that time. And so he said, there is no mention in all of history. Well, that argument, now that simple argument, by uh, Porphyry in the third century held all the way up until the mid-1800s. And it was used by liberal scholars that this guy has Belshazzar there. All right, let's look at that. Before looking at any other type of, of, of archaeological information, just look at that. Is that really evidence that constitutes proof in any sense? What, where is that evidence coming from? Okay, he's saying that Nabonidus was king, but when you read a statement here that says Belshazzar was king, and a statement there that says Nabonidus was king at that time, uh, is, what is that argument based on? Do, does that necessarily have to be a contradiction? Well, he, he's taking, he has faith in the secular history, just like we have faith in this. So he's saying that the secular history is accurate. Okay, he's saying, all right, number one, his assumption is that any time that there is a difference, secular history is accurate or not. Okay, good point, Mark. Every single time, all the way through, that there is a contradiction, well, I should say apparent contradiction, because we really don't have a contradiction here. But every time there's an apparent contradiction, he always grabs a secular historian. Now, even though that, uh, and the interesting thing is that the secular historians are notoriously inaccurate. I mean, just like our newspapers, magazines, etc. today, that human beings don't always operate with the best information, and sometimes they're too quick to put down things. And so they are, but still he'll always go. So he, he scars looking for any information, and you're right, that's the first assumption. But then the question becomes, does that have to be a contradiction? Here you've got one that plainly says, I mean, do one or the other have to be wrong when you look at those statements? He's assuming that there shouldn't have been two. Okay. He's assuming that there could be no explanation for this. That uh, uh, he, he's assuming... That, that's his assumption, that yes, this says uh, Belshazzar, that says Nabonidus is the king, and he's assuming there can be. All right, now here's what Christians did before the archaeological discoveries. Christians said, yes, we can see this. That, and by the way, no Christian denied that that's what secular history said, and the secular evidence was very strong. It wasn't just one source. But the, the Christian says there has to be an explanation because of... And then he enumerates some of these other evidences we just talked about, plus other things we haven't talked about. So the Christian then operated from the, the viewpoint that we already have a tremendous body of evidence, and you're giving me something that does not necessarily have to be a contradiction, 
There's a possibility it looks that way, I admit, but I think there could be an explanation. The other person is operating with the assumption that there is no explanation. Okay, now, here's what the Christian pointed out even before the archaeological discoveries, and this was in Christian commentaries. They pointed out from other sources they had that in antiquity that it was the practice sometimes to have co-rulers if you had a situation where the father was infirm or out of his mind or in some way could not do the could not do the job that that individual then his son would reign or somebody else it didn't have to be a son but yet it would still as long as this person was alive he would be the legal official ruler but the other one would really be doing the job all right now that was just a theory put forth by christians as a possible well that is a possible explanation all right then what happened though the archaeological discoveries came and through the discoveries uh, by a fellow by the name of Botta in the 1840s, we find tablets with Belshazzar's name, tablets with Nabonidus's name, tablets with Belshazzar and Nabonidus, marriage contracts with Belshazzar and Nabonidus's name on it. And then more and more information is uncovered, and we find out that Belshazzar is the son of Nabonidus. Nabonidus didn't like staying in the city. He was a religious person. He was somewhat of an archaeologist himself. He liked to dig in the ruins of old temples. And so while he was out doing his thing, Belshazzar was the one that was reigning in the city. And so then we find out that, well, this was not inaccurate. Does that, does that prove Daniel's inspired? No. It just proves he was accurate. And the interesting thing is, though, except for that archaeological discovery in the 1840s, there still to this day is no mention of Belshazzar. In other words, the question becomes, if somebody wrote this in the second century, where was he getting his information? Because all available historical information had Nabonidus, who was the legal king, and that was it. And it was only through archaeological discoveries uh, over materials that had been covered up for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years do we have the Belshazzar. And so something now becomes, that becomes then a strong evidence not that Daniel's inspired, but that Daniel lived at that period of time. And he wrote, well, that becomes important later on when our prophecy thing. Well, then the next thing, Porphyry pointed out that uh, after Nebuchadnezzar comes in and takes Daniel and carries him into captivity, it says that Daniel went to school for three years and then he interpreted this dream. But it puts the interpretation of the dream in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar. And so he says, this guy's got a contradiction. Uh, it happened that he, he actually uh, defeated Jerusalem three years ago, uh, and now we have this event here happening, and, and he's, only, he's, he's supposed to have been to school for three years. The event took place three years ago, and now here this is happening in the second. He says, again, how does an inspired person write with that kind of contradiction? Well, then the archaeological discoveries come forth, and they say, well, Nabal Palasser was king before Nebuchadnezzar. And during his last year, he was ill. He had been hurt in battle. And so Nebuchadnezzar actually was the official ruler, uh, the one that actually did the job, but Nabopolassar was still alive. And so it wasn't until he died that Nebuchadnezzar became the legal ruler, but really he'd been ruling for those three years. Well, not only does this uh, show there's no contradiction, but again it shows that Daniel is written with the kind of accuracy 
that someone could not have written with in the second century. So it's interesting that the very thing that was being used against Daniel, two things now come out and show that it's being written with the kind of accuracy and the kind of information that nobody was even aware of. And then he refers to Daniel Belshazzar, says, I'll make you the third ruler. And nobody even knew what he was talking about. And now as a result of this, we can see there. And again, though, it's evidence that the writers using information in such a way that a person could not have used it in the second century. Okay, now, so as the information pours in, and as we learn more about the language, another argument was made is that uh, Daniel has some six different Greek words. In other words, although it's written in uh, Hebrew and Aramaic, it contains six Greek words. And I said it shouldn't have had those Greek words until Alexander the Great conquered the civilized world, and then the Greek culture was spread. And so they used those six Greek words, that's all they were, as evidence that it had to have been written after the time of Alexander the Great. Well, there again, that was a piece of evidence. You just didn't have any information to counteract it. And so they just went on that assumption based on their preconceived idea of no God, no inspiration in the first place. Well, then, through further study of the language, we find out that the Greeks were traveling before Alexander the Great. And that they had indeed been to Babylon. And that uh, they had indeed dealt with the Medo-Persian Empire. And then we even nail down that those six particular Greek words were used during that period of time. And so that argument goes out the door. And again, we find out that uh, an argument actually begins to be in the favor of somebody who is living in the way that he uses those words. All right, then they study the language further, and they find out that the Hebrew and the Aramaic coincides with the Hebrew and the Aramaic of this particular time. Okay, suffice it to say, in any way that you could set out to prove that a particular book was written and completed at a particular time, in any type of evidence that you could possibly have, you have all of that when you deal with Daniel. You have it when you deal with Isaiah. You have it when you deal with Jeremiah. You have it when you deal with the law of Moses. We've just used Daniel as a model. That you can take any one of these books, and I'm not saying you can place it in its precise year, but I'm saying you can place it in the time frame based on all evidence, and any argument that has ever been made down through the centuries was always an argument from silence where there was not enough information to prove one way or the other, given by one who operated with a presupposition that there was no, no inspiration. Okay, now, what was true then is true today. Arguments from unbelievers today against the Bible will always come from the realm of silence, dealing with some information where you don't have anything one way or the other. But what you're saying in your mind all the time is that every time without exception that the archaeological information has come, it's always vindicated the book itself, every every time. Okay, now, now having looked at it from a standpoint that, that we can place it at that time, now what you're ready to do is to study the prophecies of the book itself. And, and having placed it at that time, you can sit down and study that, and all you need now is Daniel and some history books. Okay, so you get to the second chapter then, and your first prophecy, and again, for lack of time, we won't won't read it. Everybody is familiar with that 
dream that Nebuchadnezzar had? I mean, is everybody... Okay, you got the image and the head of gold, the breast of silver, the brass, the iron legs, and then a little rock hits that image, destroys it. And then that little rock fills the entire earth. Okay, now that is what uh, Nebuchadnezzar saw in a dream. And he didn't understand it any more than you and I would. And so here Daniel interprets it for him. And he said, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. Well, he was the head of Babylon. After you is going to come another empire. After that, still a third one that will encompass the entire world. After that will be the greatest, the strongest of all. And he says, during the days of that one, the Lord God will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Okay, now, let's again go back to porphyry. Let's say that this book was written in 163. Keep in mind, that's when the liberal scholar, uh, uh, the unbelieving scholar, put it. So let's, let's just give him his, let's just give it to him in 163. Okay, Daniel, in 163, this writer can see Babylon was a great world, world power. Medo-Persia was a great power. Greece was a great power. What about Rome in 163? Not yet. New kid on the block. Is there anything in all of writing in that second century that would indicate that Rome was going to be the greatest world empire that ever existed? Nothing. In other words, this guy, let's say he's writing in 163, after just experiencing this tremendous Grecian empire, Babylonian, Medo-Persian, uh, and the split in the Grecian Empire and the falling apart, he now is saying there's going to come one that's greater than any one of the other three. And then he's saying something else. He's saying in the days of that, the Lord God will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. All right? This guy has to die. Rome hasn't even conquered Israel. In 63, Pompey comes in and conquers Israel. Rome develops into the greatest empire the world has ever known. And then in the days of the Roman Empire, Jesus is born. And Christianity to this day is the only worldwide kingdom. It exists in every nation, every continent, every nation, every language. And right now, about 38% of the population of the world profess belief in Jesus. I'm not saying they're all equally sincere Christians or anything like that, but I'm saying that of the uh, 5 billion people on this earth, about 1.8 billion profess belief in some sense in Jesus and that on any given day all over the world, millions of people are in some sense studying information about him. And that we have this body of people that is the most influential. We, you know, we talk about the atheists and the Muslims and everybody else. But Christians are still the most influential people on the face of the earth. Try to think of something in the world. Even if you're an atheist, try to think of some force in the world that has been more influential on the world than Christianity is. It's not there. Uh, that, that's the reason the atheists are not really fighting the Hindus. And they're really not fighting the Muslims. Uh, the reason they're fighting Christianity because Christianity is really the only world force. And it bothers an atheist that something so false has influenced so many people 
and, and, and has caused them to think all kinds of nonsensual things that sending them to, uh, to shrinks and messing, taking all the fun out of their life and, and causing them to think that gays are queer and, and that causing them to think that uh, uh, sexual relations outside of marriage are wrong and, and causing them to think that all kinds of things are, are wrong that uh, this and, and sets itself up as a dogmatic value system, well, that's aggravating to a, an atheist. I mean, it, it's okay that it says that, but that so many people believe it. Okay, so I'm saying this guy writes in 163. That in itself is something that I don't know how in the world anybody does, that he puts this fourth empire and then he starts a kingdom that spreads to the entire world and it happens just exactly that way. And so the question becomes, how did he even write that in one in 163? And then when you take our evidence and go back then, look at what Daniel has just done. And in order to appreciate it, try to think 10 years into the future yourself. And that Daniel has talked about four renowned world empires, the crumbling, the starting of another one, and it becoming worldwide. And we can just simply historically see that unfold before our eyes. Didn't he never think that... That the four empires were Babylonia, and then the Medes and the Persians separately, and then or the, the Greeks. Well, I've read something about that. So that that was his interpretation of, of the dream. All right, now Daniel, in looking at looking at it, did not, other than what was given him there, did not understand himself. You know what what was going to happen. That he, in other words, that you, in the eighth chapter, he actually gets sick trying to figure it all out. And he was told that it was for another time. And then you've got Jesus and the New Testament coming along and using it to point. And by the way, Josephus, uh, by the, Josephus believed that had come to the conclusion before he died that Vespasian was the Messiah because Vespasian led the Roman army against uh, Jerusalem and defeated it in 70 AD and just totally destroyed Israel as a nation, scattered them all over the world. And so Vespasian then was led to believe, but the reason he was led to believe that is because he believed Daniel and he recognized Rome as that fourth world empire. And, and the reason that Jews were at a fever pitch waiting for the Messiah is because they understood Rome as the fourth world empire. Uh, the uh, use of it in another way was done by Porphyry starting in order to take away from this very thing that we're talking about and trying to show that, you know, the two separate things there. But really, Medo-Persia actually came together and you had uh, Darius sort of as the general under Cyrus and, and actually being the one to be the first one in control of uh, Babylon, but yet they, was, they recognized it as one empire. It started out with the Medes, the greater, and then the Persians eventually became the, the greater of the two. All right, well, in this, uh, later on in his uh, vision, he sees a ram, in other words, to show you that Daniel didn't understand it in that, in that way. First he sees uh, the one, the Babylonian, all right, with the Medo-Persian, he sees two horns, and one becomes greater than the other. Then he has a, a he-goat that hits this ram and destroys it and defeats it. And then after the he-goat, he sees something that he can't even describe because it, it becomes bigger and stronger in others. So he starts with Babylon. He has Medo-Persia. as a, He describes it as, a, as one ram, one animal. 
and with uh, with two horns. And then that one animal is hit. He said he calls it the Grecian king by one. But then after that, he has the other. And so what you stated on that, that was first uttered by Porphyry also. And it was really just trying to get away from the problem that I just mentioned that he still had with Daniel having a fourth empire and then the kingdom being set up that would uh, never be destroyed. But uh, in the vision, uh, to me, you, you just have to totally ignore, you know, that eighth chapter. Uh, flip over to the ninth chapter. Skip over again from a time standpoint. And look at the one here, starting with the uh, 20th verse. Uh, Let's see, we'll be far down to read. Uh, I'm through the end of the chapter. Uh, Mark, would you read that place uh, from the 20th through the end of the chapter? While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. No one understand this from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes. There will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will be cut. He will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Okay, now look at the setting. Daniel tells you in the first verse that um, in the first year of Darius, the son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, uh, he was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. In the first year of his reign, uh, I, Daniel, I, Daniel, the first year of his reign would have been about 538 B.C. In other words, they defeated Babylon in 539, so it had been right about 538 B.C. I understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord, uh, Jeremiah the prophet that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years and that's in Jeremiah 25 and 11 he said it would be 70 years and so he realizes that Daniel was carried off in about uh, 605 we're now in 538 and so we're really only about three years away from that 70 years being fulfilled and so Daniel realized that this captivity was only going to last and so out of this period of 70 years captivity then comes this statement of 77s. While I was speaking and praying and confessing, etc., uh, then he says, beginning with verse 24, 77s are decreed for your people. 
Okay, now notice what's going to happen at the end of 77s, whatever that is. Okay? To finish transgression, put an end to sin, atone for wickedness. And, and when you read that, remember that there was no Jew alive, even the most devout, that had a concept of God incarnate coming to the earth and dying for the sins of mankind. Nobody had that concept. Uh, the, uh, remember how difficult it was for the apostles, and, and they didn't believe it until after the resurrection, that there was no Jew that had that concept. So here he is saying that, that after the, the 70, during the 77th period, finish transgressions, put an end to sin, atone for wickedness, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. And he says, know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and build, rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. Okay, so after seven sevens, first there will be the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. After that, we will go seven sevens before it happens. Then we got 62 sevens. Okay, first it will be rebuilt with streets, etc., after the 62 sevens, the anointed one, all right, Christ is just simply a Greek word that means anointed one. Messiah is Hebrew word that means anointed one. He says the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, will be cut off and have nothing. The people of the ruler will, will come to destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue to the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of the temple, he will set up the abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Okay, now, historically, Daniel utters this. He doesn't fully understand it himself, except, now one thing that Daniel does know, he know the Lord, knows the Lord God has promised all the Jews know that a Messiah is coming, like David, of the lineage of David, and that the Lord God will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. But Daniel and all Jews are thinking of a physical kingdom here on this earth with the Messiah reigning in Jerusalem. And he writes, but still he has that understanding. All right, historically, here's what happens. The uh, command from the Persians to rebuild Jerusalem was given by Artaxerxes in the 20th year of his reign. Okay, the 20th year of his reign was about 457. Okay, the historian Thucydides, uh, the most scientific of all the historians. Uh, of the, of, in fact, the most respected of all ancient historians. 457. Okay, but then notice now how the thing fits. In 408 is when the event was completed. In other words, the fact that, that uh, this command was given in 457, right in there, that we're dealing with historical fact. The fact that by 408, we have the culmination of the building of the city and everything like that, that is historical fact. Okay, so that's 49 years. Well, then 62 times 7 is 434 years. So if you put 434 years onto 408, that brings us to 26 A.D. Okay, and then he says, after that period of time, the Messiah 
is to appear. Okay? We look back and we say, well, the Messiah didn't start to uh, preach until 30 A.D. But we know there was a four-year mistake in the calendar that we use now. We say 30, but all scholars know it was 26. Jesus was really born about 4 B.C. So when we take into consideration the mistake in the calendar, and we add 434 years under that 408, we come to 426. Well, that is historically when Jesus came at 426. Okay, then three and a half years later, Jesus is executed. He said, in, and he said, in the midst of the seven, he's going to be cut off. Okay, now the the thing right after that, what e scholars debate as to the ending, you know, of the three and a half years after Christ, as to what all is involved here. Historically, you can simply show that the gospel went out initially to absolutely nobody. Remember, it was to go to go to from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And so by the time that we have, right about that time is when the Apostle Paul was converted, the Apostle to the Gentiles. So the gospel had gone out to nobody except Jews uh, for, for that first three to three and a half years. Then we have the conversion of the Apostle Paul and then the gospel is going to go out to the entire world. All right. Then it says, after this period of time, on the wing of this, in other words, not too, far, not too distant future, will come one that maketh desolate, and he talks about the destruction of the city itself. Well, Israel will go to Rome, go to battle, go to war with Rome in 66, and will be destroyed in 70. Okay, the point is this, that when, when he initially utters this, You've got something that you can just see that there is a Messiah coming. Something's going to happen that causes him to refer to him being cut off. He's going to make an end of sin. Of, of sin. Transgression's going to be done with. Everlasting righteousness is going to be brought in. And then we can see that the temple is going to be destroyed, the city, etc. Okay, when we look back at it now, historic, historically, and they did this in the first century, we can see everything fall in line with what Daniel said here. All right, now, the Christians of the first century understood that and used that in their evidences concerning Jesus and his Messiahship and the sacrifice and all of this. And again, this is one of the reasons that Porphyry, a pagan, attacked this so strong because Daniel was used in such a strong way by Christians as an evidence concerning the Messiah, and by the way, has been uh, down through the years because of the uh, prophecies involved. All right, now, look at those statements of the things that was going to happen at the end of that period of time. Finish transgression, put an end to sin, atone for wickedness, bring in everlasting righteousness. Notice how that fits in absolutely perfect with what the New Testament teaches. But at the time that even Jesus was living, there was no Jew that understood this. We understand everlasting righteousness now because we stand here righteous because of the atoning sacrifice of Christ and his, his righteousness that's imparted to us. Mark? I understand the last part of verse 24, it says, to fill up vision prophecy. We know that the revelation went even to John was after that 490-year period, right? No, I'm saying that the... The 490-year period ends 
three and a half years after uh, Jesus, right? I mean, because you got down to four, three and a half. All right, then it says on the wing of that comes that. In other words, it tells you about then the destruction of Jerusalem and all. Well, during this whole period of, at the conclusion of this 77s, and this whole period of time, then you would have a sealing up of vision and, and prophecy and all. But see, uh, it says a wing in the temple. Okay, the whole okay when he mentions here where it says uh, the one that causes desolation until that end is degree, the end would come with the desolation here. All right, Jesus applied it himself. The abomination of desolation spoken of uh, to the destruction of Jerusalem and all. I'm saying that all you can see that at the conclusion of all of this, it would culminate with this event happening. In other words, the desolation that was going to take place after the culmination of the event itself. All right, keep in mind in the language until Jesus used it this way, there was no Jew that understood it. In other words, he just had it there and he knew the Messiah was coming. But obviously there was no Jew that believed Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. Remember, they, they called that blasphemy when Jesus said it. And so Jesus has taken Daniel and applied it to something, but they've never used that. Uh, in Daniel, they just didn't fully understand it. All right, I'm saying it's not until after the event takes place that you can clearly see what he's talking about here. All right, in all of the prophecies, what you have is Daniel seeing a vision that he really doesn't understand himself. And then the interpretation is given up to a certain point, but all the details are not there. But then after it is fulfilled, then you can, then you can see that what is stated there perfectly fits the fulfillment itself. It's sort of like uh, Isaiah 53. The Ethiopian eunuch has said, is this man speaking of himself or somebody else? Well, you read Isaiah 53 without the Gospels and you really can't understand it. But you read it after you've read the Gospels and you can't miss it. And in the same, that these people, the prophets were used in such a way that they actually saw the various visions and they described what they saw. And they were, they were given interpretation to a certain degree, and they wrote that down. But it would not be until the actual fulfillment of the events themselves that they would have the complete understanding. And, and by the way, this is important, really an important element in the prophecy because the, when it comes to using prophecy as an evidence, the prophecies that, that people sometimes use are really not the evidence at all. The prophecies like that state certain facts the unbeliever simply uses the argument that the Christian picked that up like a grocery list and went about fulfilling it. In other words, they say the disciples of Jesus simply picked those statements up like a grocery list and went about writing down the fulfillment of it. That was all, that's always been their argument. The prophecies that the unbeliever has never been able to deal with is the prophecies like this right here and also the prophecies in Isaiah 53 and a multitude of others where the event is of such a nature that the Jews themselves do not fully understand it. And they have a lot of different interpretations. But then after the event, it's so obviously fulfilled it that, that you couldn't miss it. Uh, you know, for example, even Voltaire would be impressed with Daniel and would be impressed with Isaiah 53 after, after the event itself. What I was saying there is that at the very first of 24, it says... 
77 to pray for your people. Uh, and, and we see that's 490 years. And at the end of it, it says to seal up vision. And I was saying that that the prophecy of John came after the 490 years. But then you said that it came on a wing after that. Right. It came on the wing of the, the one that set up abomination. See, there's there's a different way even of looking at what you're saying, though, than even this coming on the wing. John was living during this, and all these disciples of Jesus were living all through this period of time. And after the apostles, you know, it was after the apostles, and, and though in that generation, there would be no more inspiration or miraculous gifts or anything of this nature. But during the actual period of time, and I'm saying that the, the apostles who lived through this actual period of time and were already imbued with that power by Jesus would be the last so far as the, the no more no more given to man. This was it. And they understood that and, and even spoke of it as like the Hebrew writer, once for all, you know, and Peter's statement, we have received all things that pertain to life and godliness. And Jesus' statement, the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. And so I'm saying that the statements of Jesus and these people about themselves is that we were getting complete truth and then that that would be it. And then Paul's statement even in Corinthians that uh, now by the faith, hope, and love, these other things would be done away. And, and all, But yet faith, hope, and love. And so I'm saying that even if you didn't have the wing of abomination, you still have the actual people themselves living during that period of time and they were the last that was inspired. Uh, actually, once uh, th this here actually becomes uh, an evidence, I believe, for the completion, you know, of the New Testament and all uh, through the life of the apostles and and uh, and through that period of time that he's he's dealing with here. I don't believe personally that there was any inspiration after these events. That I think that's it. I don't believe John was. Of course, I, I believe Revelation was written before seventy A.D. Uh, by John, and I and I don't believe that there was any inspiration after that. I think that was I think that was it. I think it's interesting that verse twenty four too. It says, "Seventy seven are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression." So it you know it throws the, the holy city in there too, and so it looks like the end of the city is the end of the prophecy. Yeah, you so, uh, can again, Porphyry's argument of a devout Jew writing this in 163 to uh, give inspiration to the Jews, you know, and everything like that. Can you picture a devout Jew talking about the Messiah coming and then being cut off and then their city being destroyed? And, and yet at the same time bringing in everlasting righteousness. I don't know how in the world anybody in the second century could even understand this. You know, I just don't. Uh, it's sort of like Isaiah 53. I don't know how you understand it in the second century. And yet, when it happens, it's so perfectly. The you know, I know when I was uh, first studied as a young as a young person studying prophecies, the prophecies like uh, this in Isaiah fifty three used to bother me in the sense that I wanted them even more precise and everything. I mean, why don't God just come out and say it, you know, and 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 not let us have to think and 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 study through this, and then. The more you study, though, and you, especially when you get into the realm of studying the works of unbelievers, it helps you to appreciate the beauty even more. It, it's the very fact 
that the people involved in the writing of these prophecies and in the fulfillment of it obviously did not understand so much of it themselves that actually gives it its validity. In other words, nobody can come to the New Testament and say the disciples picked up a grocery list and went out and fulfilled it because they didn't understand the grocery list. And and the fulfillment was, was completely different to all the theories and opinions that they had in that particular day. But again, can you see that uh, if you're sitting down studying with somebody that is not a Christian, dealing with the inspiration of the Bible, that if you're willing to take the time on something like that, how impressive that is from, a, from an evidential standpoint. Uh, 